Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Okay, if I can have your attention, we're going to start a little bit early with the hope so we can uh, finish a little bit early, but we'll leave that up to uh, you all and uh, where we go. One uh, great panel this morning. Thank you, General Kim and the panel members. Great panel, great discussion, great, great questions. Uh, a couple of things I want to say before we start, uh, because I'm not sure many people ask this question. Uh, first, the Iraq-U.S. alliance is as solid as it's ever been. And if you listen to General Brooks uh, yesterday when he was asked a question about suspension of training, not cancellation of exercises, there are other means to train the force and keep them trained and ready until we decide we're either going to restart them or not. And that's his responsibility. His responsibility is clearly defend the Republic of Korea, peace and stability on the peninsula, peace and stability in Northeast Asia, with our great alliance of the Iraq forces and the Iraq people. I guess one of the things that the ambassador said that I probably should have said this morning, which really highlights the greatness of this alliance and how close that the people of the Republic of Korea and the United States have been. When you think about Vietnam, and you mentioned it, you talked about jungles. The Republic of Korea lost 2,999 soldiers in Vietnam, lost many, many wounded. Any time that we have deployed anywhere as a U.S. force and the U.S. has asked the Republic of Korea to provide support, they have. We also mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe logistical support, maybe combat support, maybe medical support, but that shows the strength of, of this alliance over over a long, long period of time. So, so in that context, uh, the alliance is strong. It's going to remain strong. Uh, and I don't know who who said it, but someone on the first panel said it. Uh, this is the first step, and hope for the best, plan for the worst. In that context, uh, that, that's how we have to move forward. Hope for the best and take those steps that require or help us get to our end state, which is denuclearization and uh, peaceful settlement on the peninsula. So in that context, we're very fortunate that today this, this panel We'll discuss the alliance, and it will discuss the alliance in the context of President Donald Trump and President Moon Jae-in. And what are the changes that we may see as a function of that? And to put it in context, uh, we have, I think, two tremendous uh, panel members and three tremendous uh, discussions. Uh, our first uh, panel member will be uh, Bruce Bechtel, and we'll try to restrain his enthusiasm because he gives he gives sound effects sound effects as he's talking, and, uh, and he will talk to us about the uh, alliance uh, in, the, in the context of the military developments in North Korea and actions uh, that are being taken. Then our second panel uh, member is uh, Dr. Chang Soo Kim. He is from the Korean Institute of Defense Analysis. Uh, he's been with us before. He, he 
he understands all the variables and dependent and independent variables as we move forward uh, with uh, with whatever's going to happen uh, with North Korea. Our discussions, we have Dave Maxwell, who you all know. Uh, Dave uh, knows as much about Korea as uh, most people in Washington, D.C., and helps in the National Security Agency. He advises folks in the State Department. He advises uh, people in our military who may have to deploy uh, in the event of some conflict. We have uh, Vice Admiral uh, Juan Teho and General uh, So Young Lee will be our discussants. And we'll do it in the same format that General Kim did. We'll have our panel members give their presentation. We will then have the discussants and then we'll go into the Q&A. I think one of the things that none of us in this room should forget when asked the question, is America committed to peace and stability in the Republic of Korea? You say to yourself, what are they committed with? They are committed with the blood of American men and women in the event it's necessary. <coughs> That's the biggest commitment that any, any alliance can give. So in that context, let me turn it over to uh, Bruce Bechtel, Dr. Bechtel from San Angelo University in Texas, of all places. <laughs> I guess this isn't on. It is on. You just press that little button there. The ONOF the ONOFF button. <laughs> um, it's Angelo State University, located in San Angelo, Texas. We had General Tilelli there as a guest speaker uh, um, uh, last fall, and you'd have thought the Beatles hit town. I mean, uh, it, it was it was awesome. He was very popular. I had to finally drag him out of our, our lecture hall. He says that, so I'll come back, and he doesn't pay me anything. What I'm going to talk about is North Korean. Everybody can still hear me, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is North Korean uh, developments during the Kim, excuse me, during the uh, Moon and Trump administrations, and obviously that's been this thing keeps going on. Can everybody hear me? Well, I'm worried about the filming. Um, let's let's see if we have another one. Let's get this other one here. All right. Yeah, that's probably what happened. Is what goes in and out. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You get charged. You get charged. The battery. Only ran out of charge, right? Everybody can hear me now, right? All right. Um. So there have been a lot of developments in the moon in the Moon administration in the Trump administration. You know, starting with. Uh, um, you know, really when Trump came in is what I'm going to look at in uh, February 2017. Um, so I, I think it's very interesting. Um, I think it was geopolitically something that uh, really affected the way we do foreign policy in Northeast Asia, and that's what I'm going to advance. Now, um, it's important to understand, um, even if you watch CNN, well, let me put it this way, if you watch MSNBC, if you're on the left, if you watch Fox News, if you're on the right, or if you just don't care about accurate reporting and you watch CNN, um, it doesn't matter which one of those you watch. Um, they, 
they always talk a lot about the things North Korea does, right? All of them. You know, they test missiles, they, they, uh, they had a nuclear test, but what does that mean? Generally, in the press, and even among many scholars, that means a threat to the United States, or if they're intelligent and more nuanced, a threat to the ROK-US alliance, or a threat to, to uh, US interests in Asia, etc. But that's only one threat. There's another threat that North Korea, with its, its military capabilities, has, and that's the threat to other regions through weapons proliferation. Um, and uh, in particular, and especially two specific regions, the Middle East and Africa. Um, so I'm going to address it in that context as well. By the way, August 22nd, a new book comes out, North Korean Military Proliferation to the Middle East and Africa, University Press of Kentucky, available on Amazon.com. Um, so let's keep that in mind. Um, let's talk first about North Korea's nuclear prolifer uh, nuclear programs. And how many here know how many um, nuclear programs North Korea has? Nobody? How many don't care how many nuclear programs North Korea has? <laughs> how many people here have seen Three Phases of Eve? Joanne Woodward, 1958 Academy Award winning performance. But I digress. Um, plutonium, ATU. And the latest test we saw, which was a thermonuclear test, which was literally, at the very least, using the most conservative methods possible, was 10 times bigger than all of the previous tests. At least 120 um, kilotons is what the latest test was. So pretty important stuff. <clears throat> um, at the very least, we have proof that the plutonium program was proliferated to Syria. And my cousins in Israel destroyed that in 2007. I, I just wish I could have been a fly on a wall, you know, some guy cutting the regiment. Say, hey, what's that on the fuselage of that jet? It's a star of <coughs> Anyway, so we know they've uh, proliferated the plutonium program, which was a big red line, right? Back in the 2000s, as people like Bruce Bennett and General Tulele, Dave Maxwell remember, the big red line was, well, when they proliferated, that's it. Well, guess what? That happened 11 years ago, black and white, unambiguously. They have probably proliferated many aspects of their highly enriched uranium program to Iran. And if you have questions about that, I can quote you the sources that I've used largely in the press and Jane's, which everybody knows is a very credible source. Um, their thermonuclear weapons program is new, uh, at least as far as I can tell in unclassified channels. So that's something that uh, hopefully we'll keep an eye out for if and when they resume testing. Let's talk about North Korea's missile programs that they've tested during the Trump and Moon eras. Uh, the Taepodong series, also called the Unha series by the North Koreans, a space-launched vehicle, um, has now successfully launched a satellite into space twice. Um, it also helped North Korea develop technology for its three-stage ballistic missile capabilities. Um, when we say successfully launch a satellite into space, what does that really mean to guys like me that are looking at the military aspects of it? It means they were able to run a missile through all three stages. That's what it really means. Um, and for those, and there have been um, some who have said, well, just because they have a space launch vehicle doesn't mean that they're using that 
to develop a ballistic missile. Um, I won't say who they, those people are, but their initials are Mark Elliman and Mark Fitzpatrick. Um, and they have said that repeatedly. Um, so let me give you one example of how that is exactly and unambiguously wrong. One of the stages from the UNHA is actually one of the stages that was on what the North Koreans call a Hwasong-14. If that's not using an SLV to help develop a ballistic missile, an ICBM, I don't know what is. Um, so, interesting stuff. That's the tape dog. Between 2014 and 2017, North Korea tested a variety of older but still useful systems. For example, FROGS. Um, this is not an amphibian. FROGS stands for Free Rocket Over Ground. Very, very old, old Soviet 50s vintage technology. Um, several variants of the SCUD. The NODONG, um, their version of the SS-21. The KN-6, which is an anti-aircraft missile, and of course what we call the Musadon, which is the North Korean adaptation of the old Soviet SSN-6, or as the Soviets called it, the R-27. Um, they also have displayed, but not tested, the KN-08, which is a three-stage um, ICBM ballistic missile. Um, on May 17th, of 2017, which by the way was also the day that the apple of my eye, the center of my life, my baby girl graduated from the University of Iowa, North Korea celebrated by launching the Hwasong-12 missile, which is a missile that has a supercharged, essentially, Musadon engine in it. Musadon being, again, the SSN-6, uh, originally from the Russians. There has been much argument in the community the Korea Watcher community about whether that's a souped-up Musadon engine that the North Koreans developed to be more advanced, which they've done with many engines, or whether they got RD-250 engines from the Ukrainians. And either one of those is possible, or things in between, such as them getting blueprints from, or stealing the blueprints from the Ukrainians and building engines, or they just built better Musadon engines. A lot of argument about that. Uh, but that was one that they tested, again, May 17th uh, or May of last year. And why is that so significant for us? Because it definitive, that missile test definitively proved that they don't just have the range to hit Guam. They have the range to hit way past Guam with an SSN-6-type mission, uh, type engine. Um, for those who don't know a lot about Guam, I was stationed there for two years when I was in the Marine Corps. 170,000 U.S. citizens, um, two military bases, um, and most importantly, the best beach bars in the Western Pacific. I spent many hours there as a young I'm sure Marine. You did. Huh? Yeah. I believe you. I'm sure you do. Um, so that was that was in May, and they did that again in, in uh, August and September of 2017. They've tested the Hwasong 12 several times now. Uh, talking about their ballistic missile, you heard what I said about the uh, what they call the Hwasong-14, essentially using parts from the, the UNHA, what we call the Tepodong. Um, and it's something I'd like you to consider. We keep seeing longer and longer missiles, but essentially a lot of these missiles are taking components from older missiles they have, ratcheting them together. I'm simplifying it, of course. But, you know, putting parts of older missiles and newer missiles so they can make them longer range and more effective, that's something we've seen the North Koreans doing literally since way back in the early 1990s 
when they essentially took SCUD technology and built the NODOM. So this is nothing new, but now we're seeing the longest range missiles we've ever seen. Um, the Hwasong-14 had a range assessed by those who watched the test of 6,700 kilometers, which means it can hit Alaska. Um, I actually got asked by one of my Angelo State students, Dr. Bechtel, is it such a big deal that they can hit Alaska? Well, yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know and have never been to Alaska, 40% of the state's population is located in Anchorage. So you'll probably kill a wide swath of people should you be able to hit Anchorage, which they can with that missile. Wasong 15, which they later tested successfully, again, how many people here understand how those tests evolved? They basically fired the missiles almost straight up into the air um, so that they wouldn't overfly Japan's airspace and some other stuff. Um, and then they estimated how far they flew up and then came back down. The Hwasong-15 supposedly can hit um, areas at least as far off as the Midwest, but not Iowa. So that's, that's the missile programs that were taught that we have seen tested during the Moon and Trump administrations. It's a lot. Um, talking about their maritime programs. Um, what I think is fascinating about North Korea is they have this, especially compared to the ROK Navy, dilapidated, primitive Navy, and yet they're still proliferating naval stuff all over the Middle East and Africa. Um, an example, um, General, you've probably heard of this, the KH-35 missile that they tested uh, about 18 months ago. Um, that goes on a ship that has a low-density um, uh, it's hard to describe this. It's it's an anti-radar ship, so it's hard to detect. Low silhouette. Low silhouette, right. Good work. Bravo Zulu, Dr. Maxwell. Um, they have tested that on the exact same ship that they've sold many versions of to Iran. And Iran calls it the PAYKAP ship, P-E-Y-K-A-A-P. Um, they also have now developed a tubular boat that is a semi-submersible. For those of you who are not... Uh, keeping, who don't keep up with North Korean military developments for many, many years. The North Koreans have things that look like a cigarette boat that essentially set under the waves, and they have they sit just close enough to the surface where air can get in. They have tubes that come out. They have air come in. They've developed a new one that's tubular and faster and harder to detect. Um, so interesting stuff. They have a new submarine that is a derivative of the old Soviet Golf-class submarine, which had a has a dwell time of 72 days, which means it can uh, deploy against Hawaii. Um, because everyone's asking me, but Bruce, what are the, the uh, actual uh, measurements of the sub? Well, I'll tell you. It's 67 meters long, has a beam of 6.6 .6 meters, and a diving displacement of 3,000 tons. Why is that a big deal? Because this is the first submarine that North Korea has ever had that is really more than just kind of a coastal dweller. I mean, they've got old, old, old and loud Romeo submarines and some, and some whiskey-class submarines, but this is the first submarine they've ever had that can actually go out and go against someplace like Hawaii or Guam. Um, and the other thing about that submarine is that it carries a submarine-launched ballistic missile that looks an awful lot like the Chinese JL-1. Remember you heard it from Bruce Bechtel, the JL-1. Um, a solid fuel ballistic missile with a range of about 3,000 kilometers. <coughs> what does that mean? 
means they have to get within 3,000 kilometers of Hawaii to shoot a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile at Honolulu. So, important things to keep in mind. They call this missile the Pogoksong-1. They also have what they call the Pogoksong-2, which has a little bit longer range, but is launched from a transporter erector launcher from land. How do we know it's the same missile? Because both missiles use what's called cold launch technology. And what is that? Anybody know? Well, he knows. That means that when it's in this, well, he knows. Yeah, you know everything. You're one of those techno geek guys. But uh, um, what it means is if you're a submarine, instead of just being launched directly out of the sub, it's pushed out with an air bubble, and then it fires up. So it comes out like this. And then the flame comes out, and it's launched. And they do that for the submarine launch version, right? But for the land version, where you don't need to do that, they still launch it the same way. Obviously, it's coming out in air, so you don't need the air bubble, but they do it that way anyway. We've seen both those missiles launch the same way. This is a new threat. A solid-fuel missile on a long-range submarine is a big threat. Not to South Korea. Not to Japan. To the United States. So, some stuff on, on Navy stuff. Air and ground systems. Um, the North Koreans have improved their drones. Um, what we call drones, us in the civilian community, because as you can tell, I'm just a lazy civilian now. Um, uh, those drones, some of them appear to be of Chinese design, and there's even a drone they have that appears to be almost exactly like the MQM-107 Streaker drone. Everybody knows what that is. Um, they've uh, also, for their ground forces, improved and upgraded their armored personnel carriers. This is all within the past two years. Um, <coughs> for you Army guys, and there's a lot of you in here, they have made improvements in the capabilities for the Songun Ho tank, uh, which is basically um, an upgraded, indigenously produced North Korean version of the T-62. Um, M-62, I'm sorry. Um, they have made improvements to their multiple rocket launchers. They now have 300 millimeter multiple rocket launchers. Uh, as far as I know, Korean guys, please correct me if I'm wrong. They have not deployed those to the DMZ yet. But deployed from the DMZ, those 300-millimeter rocket launchers can hit the PX at Camp Humphreys. Now, why would I specifically use the word PX? For one thing, it's the biggest PX in Asia, so I'm really jealous. So we got a teeny tiny one at Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas. Um, but for another thing, this is the first MRL that the North Koreans have ever had that is guided by GPS. So when they launch these MRLs, they, they take off, and then they're actually guiding it as it's flying, which is amazing to me that the North Koreans have this technology. Where did they get it? Um, either Russia or China, because nobody else has those kind of MRLs. Um, they're also developing EMP technology. Uh, when I got a grant to, to do this research, four years ago for the book that will be on Amazon.com. Um, one of the people of the board that gave me this grant specifically said, I want you to talk about EMP in North Korea. And so I talked about EMP in North Korea, about four pages. Um, it's a little frightening. Um, 
North Korea probably doesn't have it today, but someday may have the capability of launching something, a satellite into space that could cause <coughs> all of our non-hardened facilities to just go haywire in the United States. <coughs> Excuse me, something to think about. Um, something that has come in the news a lot lately and is in my book and was very controversial until last year when the UN panel of experts brought it up was North Korea's chemical weapons capability. North Korea has a very robust chemical weapons capability. In fact, it's probably the most capable chemical weapons program in East Asia. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. Not only is this capability very robust and technically advanced, but they've had several years now to practice it. Why do I say this? Because they've been proliferating chemical weapons to the Syrians. Chemical weapons that the Syrians have been using in their civil war. And so <coughs> the North Koreans now understand how these things work in combat because they've seen it. And that's a little bit frightening. If anybody has any questions about that, uh, bring that up, please, in the Q&A. Cyber warfare is something we've read a lot about for North Korea in the past couple of years. Um, if anything, it's only improved. It's gotten better. Um, for those of you who don't know, <coughs> the primary cyber capability that North Korea has is embedded in the Reconnaissance General Bureau, which, as you Korean guys know, uh, was a result of the Operations Department from the party and the Reconnaissance Bureau from MPATH merging into one organization um, when Okuk Yol I'm sure told, uh, suggested that to Kim Jong-il. Um, supposedly they have about 7,000 guys <coughs> in the RGB that do this. So they're not special forces like Dave Maxwell or the general were. They're more like guys with tape on their glasses, you know, <laughs> special forces. <laughs> um, and, they, and they've invaded Bitcoin places as well. Um, finally, uh, one of the reasons I talk about SOF so much in my book, especially in Chapter 2, is because <coughs> excuse me, North Korea proliferates the training of special forces all over the world, but especially to places like where Hezbollah are located, where Hamas is located, the Houthis, and several nations, about seven of them, in Africa. So if you're to ask me, Bruce, when you talk about proliferation, why do you bring up special forces? Because those guys are all over the world training, you know, these tin pot dictators and these uh, terrorist groups how to do the same thing that they can do. Um, it's important to note all of these capabilities that I've highlighted, I think, because many of them have either been upgraded or deployed, that is to say proliferated during the Kim Jong-un era, and already are proliferated or likely to be. It is this that makes North Korea's military capabilities a double threat, a threat that must be taken seriously and hopefully a threat that will be addressed when President Trump and Kim Jong-un start getting into the details of denuclearization and what comes after that. And I'll just stop there. Thank you, Bruce. Hollywood sound effects were a little off. <laughs> <laughs>
now I ask uh, Dr. Kim uh, Chung Su to uh, give us uh, his uh, paper on denuclearization, peace regime, and the Rock US alliance issues or post summit talks. The title of the presentation I'm going to make right now is three parts. Denuclearization, peace regime, and the Iraq US alliance issues post summit talks, meaning post inter Korean summit talks and also US deep summit talks in Singapore. But also, there have been some other related uh, summit talks between China, North Korea, and Japan, US, Korea, trilateral summit talks. And I think there will be a lot more to come in the years, in this year, and maybe within two or three years. So there will be a series of talks coming in and between among the three countries in the north, in the north, north, south, and United States, and China definitely, and Japan and Russia as well. So this is a series of summit talks among all these regional players that will really change the whole landscape in this part of the world within probably two or three years, and even more so. So my point is, because we are talking about the denuclearization and how we're going to build a new peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, but also my worry are how we're going to shape all the combined forces of command, CFC, UN structure in South Korea, and also related issues like USFK, how we're going to change the role of mission of USFK, and how many, you know, USFK will be allowed as an end strength, as opposed to like 20,500. Sometimes Mr. Trump made like 32,000. I don't know where he got it. But, uh, but another very interesting story, is we, if you look at his statement, a press conference in Panmunjom, there was a Korean translation that was available maybe just two or three hours later. At one point, they made 42,000. 500. So I was citing his, oh, he, at one point he cited 42,000 in the US, but I found out it was a mistake. The South Koreans, Mr. Trump never said like 42,000, but he said, quite often said 32,000, you know, US FK forces in South Korea, as opposed to the end of strength is 28,500. But anyway, I don't know why he really likes to talk about the numbers, like 25, 25,000. But somebody, somebody just seen to make an analysis that something is going on in his brain, Mr. Trump, that he really loves a specific number, like four, twenty-five, or several hundred. I don't know what I don't know what uh, what is the case with Mr. Trump. Anyway, there's a lot of confusion coming out of Mr. the mouth of the your, your president, U.S. President Trump, and also we have a lot of things coming from my, my, our president, Mr. Moon. So this is really confusing uh, moments in our society in South Korea uh, because we are really facing all different flurry of summit talks between among all these regional powers. But my worry is what kind of impact it will have on our alliance, the US-ROK alliance and USFK, because it has tremendous impact un unavoidably on these very important issues because this has been the landscape for our security for the last almost five, six um, decades. But there's a lot of uh, things coming coming up right after this uh, summit meetings, and there'll be more coming, uh, because we are talking about other summit talks between Russia, for example, Russia and China, and all related to 
issues. But so we are going to talk about the implication on these kind of summit talks will have on our security and also regional security as a, as a whole. Uh, so I was writing down maybe seven different clusters of security related issues our lives and the USFK and also the burden sharing in the order of uh, the immediate meetings because we already began our 10th uh, round of SMS special measures agreement already and we have the fourth round of talks and I actually we met at the internet airport there was a gentleman coming from MOFA to attend the meeting at the Pentagon right now so they're talking about how we went to share all this burden sharing between our two allies because we, pres we presume that Mr. Trump will ask a lot as opposed to like uh, nine, 900 billion Korean won. Uh, but so this is a very big issue because we are you know, generally presuming that the, the security environment of the Korean people will become much more favorable to us. And North Korea has a lot of things to do. And as you point out, uh, instead of cancellation, we suspend our very important combined military exercise training, beginning with the, the UFG and more is to come. So this is a totally different aspect of situation we're in. But now we're talking about the burden sharing, this restructuring UNC and CFC, the USFK. So this will have a tremendous impact. So now I think rather than making my own points to you, what I want to do is to listen to your advices because this is a very complicated issues. Demilitarization is one thing, but also building a peace regime on the peninsula is a very different one. But also, finally, USFK, our alliance issues, very three different groups of uh, issues. So this is very complicated. So I think because we have all the experts here in town, and including you know General Larry, so I want you. I really would appreciate at the end of this meeting. At the end of the day, I'm going to appreciate all your insights that you might give to me and to our South Korean delegation. So this is a point, and this is a direction you should follow in tackling all these important questions. Denuclearization and peace regime, and also USFK uh, and alliance-related issues. So, so this is my point, why instead of you know, making some my own assertion on these specific issues, I really want to hear your advices and your insights and so that we can just develop on this some of the recommendations we can bring to our government back in Seoul. Uh, I'm going to, rather speakers, the first and second part of my presentation is relatively pretty much well known already, and we discussed them in, already in the morning. So I should focus on the last part of it, the third part of my presentation, which is the seven different clusters of security, USFK, our last related issues, beginning with uh, the new totally different landscape on the South Korea, on the Korean Peninsula. Because if, if you look at all of the SCM and MCM meetings in the past, we already began how we're going to assess the security situation. Jerry remembers that. But that's the first topic always on our agenda. Whenever we had SCM and MCM, how we're going to assess a new security environment on the Korean Peninsula. But this is a totally different uh, landscape in terms of our relations with the North, in terms of your relations with the PRK, and also China's relations with the USFK, uh, and US and South Korea, and also with uh, Japan as well. So how are we going to bring our new assessment of security, totally different security uh, uh, landscape on the peninsula, beginning with this year's SCM, uh, which may be 
four or five months from away from today. So how are we going to present our new assessment of the security uh, situation, which has differed a lot from the last two years, uh, because we have a new government in Seoul, which is actually I thought it was a liberal government, but now listening to them and giving, you know, taking all of the, the policy lines and all the specific notes coming from this new government, they are very progressive. I thought it was a liberal. It's not just a liberal conservative scale like in the United States. It's a progressive. I don't know why, because two years ago, almost one year ago, when they uh, came to power, uh, May 2017, I guess, there was a lot of good things in the air. Uh, this is a new liberal government in Seoul, and they're going to work for the harmony of the Korean society, and they're going to speak all of these issues, security and welfare and kind of all these. But now, I don't know what happened to them, because they gained all these kind of, kind of power in their hands and monopoly powers, because they made a very landslide, you know, in, in the last election, local elections, almost 95% of the populace voted for the, the party in power. So they are very proud, and their popularity is like 70 to 80%. So they, they believe they have all the capability to change all these security-related issues. That is my worry, because they have to hit our security and alliance and into all the good the wisdom we have developed over the last uh, several decades. But they don't uh, want to listen to us because they are looking for a really kind of breakthrough in our relation with uh, North Korea. And also they're going to make a, bring in a new era in U.S. DPRQ relationship. This is my worry. And it's not just mine. There's a lot of positive South Koreans who are beginning to have a very uh, worry because given now, because Mr. Kim, we support Kim Jong, KJU, uh, the, their meeting at Common Joe, we were really nicely surprised by his, all the peaceful gestures. But now it's almost three months past, and we had a summit in uh, Singapore, and now the people is beginning to change a little bit because there is a kind of euphoria, almost boring optimism in the air. But now it, the situation has changed a lot because people are beginning to really question, not just the intention, because somebody talking about the intention how little sense it makes intention, because the diplomacy intention is one thing, but you have to really do something, action. But pe people are beginning, even though South Koreans are really still supportive of the new government, progressive government in Seoul, in their policy, many policies, including security policy, they're they beginning to be uh, disappointed if, uh, because of the reaction from Pyongyang, because we had a really high expectation about North Koreans coming to this uh, negotiation because we have given them a lot. But what comes out of them is much lower than we expected. So there is, even though Mr. Uh, Trump, Mr. Uh, Mr. Moon is still enjoying a very high popularity, like almost 70 some percent, uh, besides all the, the validity of the uh, surveys, because you don't just trust the survey, not in the United States, but in South Korea because the response rate is like less than 10%. So you don't just trust the telephone surveys. But anyway, there's no other ground to you know, base your uh, assessments of the current region. So Mr. Kim, Mr. Trump, uh, Mr. Moon is still enjoying a relative high uh, popularity, like 70%. But that does not automatically translate into how we're able to support his security uh, policy, particularly in North Korea. 
because North Korea has been employing all these time delaying tactics in recent days, they have not responded to our offers to meet at a certain point, like general military talks, general level military talks, high level working talks. They have not responded as they have promised. So this kind of optimism is beginning to change into kind of, kind of uh, very negative. So this is my worry. So that's why we have to have this kind of very important meetings between two allies so we can really grasp what's been really happening in, uh, in, 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 in the Korean Peninsula and how we should respond to this kind of change. Um, so if, if, I, I believe you have uh, my presentation on, in your paper. It says read that very carefully. So I, uh, I made a set clusters of questions all related to them. Because this one and each cluster of questions are very complicated, very interrelated. I cannot just make one big uh, argument uh, for each of these. For example, like a CFTUNC is a very difficult questions, And we have been working on those issues for the last 10 years, but still working on it because there are so many changes in our plan. All the plans that we have done is actually gone. Uh, even before this summit meeting, all we have are totally different uh, views, U.S. and oxide, and how you're going to change CFC and UNC, for example. But even now, it's a totally different in a security situation with all these summit meetings. How are you going to deal with the CFC and UNC, for example? Awesome. As you can see, this Persian government in Seoul has a totally different idea about the CFC, UFC, I'm going to say UNC, and also particularly Alcon transport. This is a problem that they really tried to take issue with, uh, like almost 10 years ago, Kim Dae-jung and Noh Moo-hyun, and now they have a very similar group working for Mr. Mr. Moon. So one of the points they really made earlier during the transition is we have to transfer this Alcon uh, to the rock side. I'm sure many of you know of very familiar with how misreading we have been in terms of opera. Because we just don't understand misreading because this all the very nationalist governments, people in South Korea, who make a very big issue out of almost nothing. So this is, uh, Afghan, for example, Afghan is Afghan, but in Korean it means like something, it's like a, a kind of authority. There's nothing to do with authority, it's just opposite control. So this is just one small uh, example of how divided we are, how misreading we have been on this specific term. So I really don't know how we're going to deal with all these seven different clusters of questions because each of them are so important, so big and so easy. And this is why we need a very close consultation between our two allies again. Uh, I, sh I really want this meeting to come up with a very specific uh, ideas and recommendation to my because these clusters of questions will definitely come to our way. Very important with all kinds of you know, security ramifications and also burdens and money-wise. So we have, because we have all this, you know, David and all the groups. So I really want, I, my point was trying to bring your attention to these very important questions, seven clusters. I don't know whether seven or not, but I just grouped into seven of them. So they are, because they are related to each other, seven clusters of issues facing allowance in the years to come, and beginning already, it has already begun, and now it's beginning to come. Uh, after all questions and Q&As, well, I really want to uh, jot down all the recommendations and insights by you on these specific issues. 
so that we can really uh, give uh, recommendations to the Minister of MND and JCF. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, General Tolelli, uh, for uh, the invitation. Uh, thank you to everybody for uh, for being here. Um, you know, two important uh, presentations, and I think it's it's really important to keep in mind. You know, and I'll start off a little bit with uh, Dr. Kim's point, but I really want to focus uh, on Bruce laying out the threat. Uh, the threat. You know, even though you know there's changes in relationships, I, I would posit that the threat hasn't changed. The threat still remains, and, and North Korea remains a significant has a has significant military capabilities. Uh, and I think uh, Bruce laid out uh, many of them that I don't think we pay attention to, uh, pay enough attention to. Um, and uh, you know, which really gets to my first point on, on Bruce has laid out some tremendous information uh, that. Uh, you know, on proliferation, but also missile capabilities, um, and, and of course cyber uh, and soft training. Uh, but you know, you, you've got excellent information on the missiles, KN-08s, Hwasong JL-1. We know that North Korea is the masters of, uh, masters of denial and deception. You know, what I'd ask you, Bruce, is what are we not seeing, and what worries you about what we're not seeing? You know, because I think we see a lot of things that they actually want us to see. They want to show these capabilities. Uh, they want us to know uh, what they have. And I often wonder, you know, what are we not seeing? And, uh, and I'd ask that we all think about that because, uh, you know, it's, it seems that peace is breaking out on the peninsula. Uh, I just worry about North Korea's, uh, you know, true intentions. You know, which really brings me to four basic questions that I, I ask over and over again. Uh, that I think, uh, you know, I hate to ask more questions with, with Dr. Kim's seven clusters of questions, but, you know, the way I think about this is, first of all, from the U.S. perspective, what do we want to achieve on the Korean Peninsula? Sometimes we need to st take a step back and, and think about that. And then, you know, from a ROC-U.S. alliance perspective, what is the acceptable, durable political arrangement we want to see on the Korean Peninsula that will protect and advance uh, ROC and U.S. allied interests? But what is most important and really gets at what's happened in the last two summits, uh, the Panmunjom and the Singapore summit, is the question of has Kim Jong-un abandoned the seven decades old Kim family regime strategy that's based on subversion, coercion, and use of force to achieve unification under northern domination in order to ensure regime survival. Now think about that. Has he abandoned that strategy? You know, is there any evidence that he really has abandoned that strategy? You know, especially when you're talking about subversion and coercion, uh, you know, do we really know what his intent is? And, of course, the answer to that question, uh, you know, will guide our strategy. You know, there are those that say, yes, he's abandoned that strategy. Uh, and there are those of us who say, I'm not so sure and I'm not willing to gamble. And, if, and, and I'm talking about a gamble. If you accept that, that he has given that up, I think you're gambling with the lives of, uh, of Korean citizens, you know, 48, 50 million Korean citizens in the South, uh, and, uh, and you're gambling with our, our future interests. And of course, the fourth question that's related to the strategy question that I think is really, really important is, you know, as a supporting objective to that strategy, has Kim Jong-un abandoned uh, the objective of splitting the ROC-US alliance? 
uh, with the intent to get U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula, which will create the conditions for him uh, to continue coercive blackmail, uh, blackmail diplomacy, coercive activities uh, against the ROC, uh, and if necessary, he will believe that he has the correlation of forces to combat power to unify the peninsula by force. So those four questions, you know, I'd add to your cluster of, of, of seven there. And, uh, and, you know, as a former military planner, and as General Talali said, we hope for the best, but we plan for the worst. And, um, and I'm, I'm a pretty uh, a pessimistic guy. And, um, and so I think we cannot forget what Kim Jong-un's real strategy is. And uh, uh, while we must engage, while we must give this a chance, the, the processes that have, uh, have been begun, uh, we, uh, we really need to keep in mind the real threat that, it, that exists. Now, uh, Dr. Kim brought up a, uh, some, some really good questions. You know, you know one is uh, the peace regime. And, uh, and I, I like how, you, how you've done it between denuclearization, peace regime, and alliance issues. Uh, but on the peace regime, I think it's important uh, to, to remember uh, there's going to be a lot of implications if there's a peace regime. You know, first is, of course, the armistice. The armistice was simply uh, a, an agreement between military commanders to suspend hostilities and only did really about five things. Uh, it suspended hostilities, they pledged not to attack each other from or across uh, the DMZ, it established the DMZ, established the Military Armistice Commission, and provided for uh, the, the uh, return of prisoners. That was really what the armistice did. Uh, and, of course, the key paragraph, paragraph 60 in the armistice, uh, called for all parties to come together within 90 days uh, to find a political solution to the Korea question. We should keep in mind what the Korea question was. The United Nations, uh, you know, back in 1953, you know, they were looking at the unnatural division of the peninsula. You know, the elections that were boycotted in 1948, you know, there should have been and should be a unified peninsula. You know, so that was what was in the armistice. And people say, uh, we've got to turn the armistice into a peace agreement. And again, the, the armistice was agreement between military commanders and called on uh, the political parties to come together to solve the Korea question. Now, the status of U.S. forces after a peace agreement. Uh, people, you know, say, and, and uh, uh, President Moon's close advisor, uh, uh, Moon Chung-in, you know, wrote uh, a, uh, an article in Foreign Affairs on May 9th, uh, and he said after there's a peace agreement, uh, there will be no rationale for U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula. Now, I'd call your attention to the Mutual Defense Treaty in 1953. Six articles, very short. And, you know, there's a couple things that are not mentioned, not used in the Mutual Defense Treaty. There's no mention of the, the Democratic People's Republic, and there's no mention of North Korea. The Mutual Defense Treaty uh, is the United States and South Korea to defend their interests uh, in the Pacific region. Uh, and that's what it is. So if there is a peace agreement, uh, that doesn't undermine the rationale. The rationale for U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula is based on agreement between the Republic of Korea and the United States. And so making the assumption that a peace regime will mean the automatic withdrawal of U.S. forces, uh, I think, is... A bad assumption. Now, of course, there could be great calls from both the Korean population and the U.S. population to bring home troops uh, and pressure on our political leaders to do that. But having a peace treaty, a peace regime, uh, and and uh, doesn't uh, undercut the val or the uh, the rationale for having U.S. forces on on the peninsula. 
the OpCon transfer issue, uh, I think, is, is one that uh, um, is evolving. Uh, again, and, and Dr. Kim, I think, is exactly right. We misunderstand it. We misunderstand command relationships. You know, I'll just say it here as I, I often do. The United States government does not command Korean forces. You know, it, it doesn't command Korean forces. USFK does not. You know, we often read that in the press. We forget that USFK is just a subunified command. You know, the Iraq US Combined Forces Command receives operational control of Iraq and US forces when both governments decide to provide them to the commander, you know, to defend the Republic of Korea. And, as General Brooks will say, uh, he answers to the military committee. And the military committee is made up of representatives of the National Command and Military Authorities from both nations. And so, in effect, if you understand that command relationship, the Combined Forces Command works equally for the Republic of Korea and the United States. And they have equal control and strategic direction over uh, the ROC-US Combined Forces Command. Of course, the United Nations Command, you know, established under... Uh, UN Security Council Resolution 84, uh, you know, put the U.S. in charge of that, and because of that, the commander of the UNC answers to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, as the executive agent for uh, for the United Nations Command. Uh, but the Rock U.S. Combined Forces Command answers to both countries, and so this OPCON transfer that we've been talking about, really, uh, you know, up until recently, was really about dissolving the Combined Command which I think is most dangerous uh, to the alliance. Uh, anyone who served in the combined command knows that it is really the best combined command, you know, coalition command, multinational command, whatever you want to call it, but a combined command in the world. And it is the envy of every, I mean, if you talk to the Japanese military, they would love to have the same kind of relationship uh, with U.S. forces that, that Korea has with the U.S. forces. So it is a model and something that we can keep together, that we must keep together if there is going to be a threat on the Korean Peninsula. Um, all right, so, but the real question is about the, the status of military forces. Should a peace agreement come, out, come about, uh, you know, and hopefully uh, North Korea gives up its, its nuclear weapons? Um, the question must be for both Korea and the United States is how should we best organize our combined forces to meet our objectives? And, uh, and, you know, it may be separate commands. It may be a combined command. You know, I would opt for a combined command always. Uh, but that question, uh, based on the assessment of, of the threat, uh, based on the political situation, you know, we have to answer the question of how we should best organize our forces. And, again, I would, uh, I would say that so far, in my mind, and listening to Dr. Bechtel, the threat has not gone away. The capabilities are there, uh, and, and so we should not forget that. Um, a couple last points that I'll that I'll make is that uh, um, cyber warfare I think is is really critical. Uh, Bruce brought that up, and I think we need to take a hard look at cyber warfare and what North Korea is doing. I mean, those seven thousand operators that that Bruce mentioned, you know, they are conducting I, what I would call full spectrum attacks uh, throughout the cyber domain, uh, and you know, we see evidence of attacks of financial systems. Uh, infrastructure, uh, and uh, and I am coming to the uh, to the thought that its cyber capabilities may in fact be more important uh, to the regime than its nuclear weapons. I mean, it's you know they provide the ability to gain hard currency, to conduct espionage, to attack uh, infrastructure, uh, and uh, and really to hinder the alliance. And plus, 
there is the whole infor information influence propaganda piece that is enabled in the, in the cyber domain. Uh, and so I think we have to take a hard look at that. Which brings me to the, my final point I, I want to make is that, um, oh, excuse me, one more, one more point. Timeline uh, for denuclearization or the talks. Again, Dr. Kim mentioned that we haven't, uh, um, we have not uh, had a timeline uh, and we've not made any progression since the Singapore summit. I think that uh, President Trump suspended the exercises uh, because he is setting a timeline. I think August 15th is really the, the uh, it's kind of a forcing function, I think, in his art of negotiation, art of the deal, uh, that, uh, that Kim Jong-un, I think, really has to do something uh, substantive before August 15th. Uh, now, I, I disagree with suspending the preparation for the exercises. You know, people talk about snapback. Uh, we can just, you know, you know execute the, uh, the exercises whenever we want. Uh, you know, all of us who plan military exercises know that it's harder and more complicated to plan an exercise than it is to conduct combat operations. Uh, and so you can't just conduct an exercise, uh, you know, at a moment's notice uh, or conduct an effective exercise on a moment's notice. So a lot of planning and preparation goes into it. Uh, so the suspension of planning is, is problematic. Now from a military point of view, the suspension of exercises has a, uh, an impact on readiness. Uh, and it clearly does. Um, and you know, Ultra Freedom Guardian is critically important to the staff personnel changeover. Uh, new commanders come in. It's their opportunity to understand the plans for the defense of the Korean Peninsula. And it really sets the readiness level for the entire year uh, for, for the command. Uh, and so not exercising it uh, has a readiness effect. Again, as General Talele mentioned, General Brooks uh, so there are other ways to conduct training, and there are, and there, there must be, and the commanders will be creative uh, in doing that. You know, one of the things I think that we, we forget about exercises uh, is the fact that North Korea continues to train. You know, and again, I could ask Bruce to talk about the summer and winter training cycle, you know, particularly the winter training cycle. Uh, you know, North Korea conducts training. You know, rarely do we call them out on that. Uh, but, you know, one thing that we could consider, you know, now that the president has suspended the major exercises is perhaps we could shift to the creative way to train, as General Brooks is talking about, and we could conduct our training under uh, the guise of routine training in a summer training cycle and a winter training cycle, just as the North does. Uh, and I, I believe, you know, I'm completely confident that commanders could conduct uh, effective training under that guise without having named exercises. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that we could actually give up a, a concession of the named exercises, but the military is going to argue rightly that we must ensure readiness because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so uh, I think I will, uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, just <laughs> one thing, Bruce, I, you know, I, I, I take great risks doing that because you're always, I think, being on a panel with you because you're so funny and everything, but, you know, your, your uh, comment about putting missiles together and, uh, the old missiles, you know, making uh, uh, you know, scuds into no-dongs and tapo-dongs and everything. I was reminded of that commercial, that Gorilla Tape there. You know, so when, when I, uh, we will know that Gorilla Tape has arrived when we see them taping together scuds to make uh, no-dongs and tapo-dongs. So uh, I'll leave you with that one first. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, General Tillery. Uh, thank you. I'd like to go back to it. Uh, Dr. Kim, for your excellent papers. I found both papers very thorough and 
thoughtful. Before I talk on the papers, I'd like to make my point. Looking back over the past year, the expression roller coaster is not enough to describe the security situation in the Korean Peninsula. When conducting the sixth uh, nuclear test, commonly known as the hydrogen bomb test, and a series of ballistic missile launches, Kim Jong-un seemed to be playing a chicken game uh, with the U.S. heading towards the blind end. However, now I cannot thinking, I stop thinking that all those events were milestones for a big deal with President Trump. I speculate that such approach of North Korea is outcome of lessons learned from China's, China's nuclear weapon development. China developed a hydrogen bomb in 1967 and ICBM in 1970. And only after that, in 1971, it began to improve relations with the U.S. via the ping-pong diplomacy. Likewise, I think Kim Jong-un, after declaring the completion of nuclear weapons development in November last year, has judged that he has a better chance uh, to negotiate with the U.S. having Republic of Korea as the medium. Evaluation of the results of the U.S. DPRK summit talks are mixed. Uh, but personally, I think there are good, uh, some achievements. Firstly, for the first time since the division of the Korean Peninsula, the top leaders of the U.S. and North Korea has discussion at the same table. We can expect that two summits had a serious, serious conversation regarding the North Korean nuclear weapons and the peace on the Korean Peninsula. The second accomplishment is the fact that the leader of the Hermit Kingdom has come out of the international stage. This could mean that Kim Jong-un now may be prepared with an open-mindedness of the Supreme Leader, which is indispens indispensable for denuclearization of North Korea. Also, uh, we should take into account that considering the domestic governance, it would not be easy for the North Korean leader to break the public, public promise with the international community. However, I also have a critical point of view. Uh, first of all, it deviated from our expectation that joint statement will drive consensus on definition of denuclearization, objectives, methods, and roadmaps. Secondly, it may be interpreted, interpreted that the denuclearization process, which until recently demanded to be front-loading and fast-track approach is now switched uh, to the step-by-step -step approach which the North Korea China supported. More than anything, uh, President Trump's remarks on rock U.S. combined military exercises and stationing of USFK at press conference were astonishing. After all, the remarks of provocative war game makes me think that we may be now entrapped by the strategy and tactics of North Korea, which wanted to waver 
Rock US Alliance for Decades. Now the combined exiles are suspended, and we are now talking about the peace agreement. Suspension of combined exercise obviously will have a negative impact on the combined forces readiness. But I think the exercises can always resume should the situation change. But ritual peace agreement is an essentially different matter, as it could alter the, the status of the USFK the nature of Iraq-US alliance and the Iraq's relations with neighboring countries. Once a peace agreement is in place, it will be there for good with no going back. Raising deterrent of the USFK is not just to do with the North Korean nuclear and conventional threats. The North Korean problem encompasses every possible contingencies, such as instability or a sudden collapse of the regime. Those problems cannot be separated from the PRC and Russia's Korean Peninsula policy, and thus are linked to the strategic dynamics of the Asia-Pacific as a whole. Therefore, the UN troops should remain regardless of denuclearization for stability on the peninsula, as well as Northeast Asia. If commitments to deterrence are not followed up with actions, it will be more likely that deterrence will fail. The USFK, whatever ways its nature and the status may change, must exist as a token of US commitment to the region's stability and the combined exercises will have to continue to improve the alliance uh, deterrence capabilities. <coughs> um, having said that, I'd like to uh, direct my questions to Dr. Kim. In your paper, you said, if you, uh, we have confirmed the North Korea's reserve to denuclearize, I mean, it is necessary for South Korea and the U.S. Uh, to take measures to induce and increase uh, the North Korea. My question is, what do you think could be the visible sign or signs of nuclear, uh, North Korea's regional for the swift denuclearization? Um, next, my question is to uh, Dr. Bechtel. You said that you know, also in your paper, at, at the end of your long paper, you said that the North Korea is developing weapon systems like ships, missiles, to export them uh, to the foreign countries. My question is, now the international sanction, we have very strong international sanction, and then PSI is now in place. And then how can they still export uh, those weapon systems to the foreign countries, and how can we stop them? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, General Tillery. Thank you for your dedication for our lives, as always. Uh, I'm late General Retired Lee, uh, former Defense Attorney in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is great to see you. 
Uh, I think Professor Bechtel and uh, Dr. Kim Chang-soo did excellent presentation. I agree most of your opinion and presentation. Uh, Dr. Bechtel mentioned about North Korean military development and capability. Uh, I have I agree about your opinion on you very detailed you did very detailed explanation. Uh, I have two questions. One is uh, most of the uh, experts saying North Korea ICBM uh, is almost completed. Only one issue is re-entry. So at this moment, what is your assess uh, assessment on the North Korea ICBM capability as a former marine expert and the scholarly perspective? Second question is, what is the best way to stop North Korea proliferation? You mentioned two things, so that is my question. Uh, in terms of Dr. Kim Chang-soo's uh, presentation, uh, I'd like to mention a couple of points. Uh, first, I'd like to mention about the uh, alliance itself. As this morning, Ambassador Zhou and uh, General Tillerly mentioned about our alliance. Our alliance is very unique alliance. Uh, during the Korean War, American forces dedicated a lot, as they mentioned. Also, Vietnam War, we fight together. 5,099 soldiers of Korean military killed in action. Also, Korean military participated all for Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. We fight, we fought shoulder to shoulder. Everywhere United States goes, Korean military fight together. So our alliance is very strong alliance, ironclad alliance. When I was defense attaché, General Tillery, maybe you remember that. Uh, Korea is only one country. United States four-star general <coughs> stay for defending one country. Uh, so uh, this means our alliance is very strong. Uh, but recently, uh, after uh, Summit talks, uh, President Trump mentioned a couple of things. Last year he said, Korea and the US alliance is not just alliance, it is a great alliance. I agree with you about that. Uh, but after Summit, when he has the press conference, uh, he mentioned about our Rogan US combined exercise. It is provocative exercise. Also, it takes tremendous amount of money. We did a long time. Uh, South Korean United States forces did 
military exercise long time. That is our basic mission. What is Alliance? Alliance's basic mission is deter the war, defeat the enemy, if, if deterrence is failed. To do that, we should conduct military alliance. Without training and exercise, we cannot have capability to deter, we cannot have capability to, to defeat the enemy. That's why we conduct exercise. We have reasonable reason, legitimacy, to conduct exercise. So it is not the provocative exercise. It is defensive exercise to defend U.S. strong ally. Also, he mentioned about uh, we cost a lot of money, tremendous amount of money. Uh, many experts assess uh, the budget for the major exercise. It takes about $100 million. Korea support about $1 billion for SMA, for burden sharing every year. Not only just that, Korea support most of the Camp Humphreys reconstruction, base expansion, which is about $10 billion. Also, Korea is the largest defense acquisition country from the United States. So as a whole, I think we support a lot of portion, not just military exercise money. So uh, it is very important at this time we think about that. Mm. Exercise itself is important, but it is a symbol of our lives. Mm. I'd like to mention about that. Also, the, I think when President Trump say stop the exercise, uh, he didn't fully consult with the Iraq government. Uh, most important factor for the alliance, which is trust and confidence. I think if US president unilaterally announce that kind of a big issues, then our alliance will be weakened, which is North Korea want. North Korea always want to drive in the wedge. So in the future, <clears throat> I'd like to recommend US leadership should talk and cooperate about our alliance issue very deeply, cl closely. Mm, that is about the alliance. Second point is about combined exercise. As I mentioned earlier, exercise is basic mission, basic duty. So if we suspend this kind of large-scale exercise for the negotiation of the denuclearization of North Korea, <coughs> then we should think about the term and timeline. Currently, North Korea and the U.S. agreement, joint statement, 
doesn't mention about the timeline. If a negotiation goes two years, three years, then we stop, suspend exercise two or three years. We cannot have the readiness and combat power to deter, to defeat. So we should consider about that. Also recently, uh, General Mattis mentioned about the uh, uh, U.S. Marine Corps small unit exercise, combined exercise, which is platoon level, company level, battalion level. Just the tactical level, not the strategic, not the operational level. Tactical le level combined exercise also suspended. I think tactical level exercise should not belong to negotiation. Should not belong to negotiation. As David said, if we stop, suspend exercise, large-scale exercise, we should ask to North Korea, stop your winter training exercise. That's my suggestion. Uh, in terms of the exercise, as we said, it should be restarted if North Korea doing uh, not any feasible action, we should promptly, promptly restart the exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned a couple of points about the burden sharing. Burden sharing is not a zero-sum game. Burden sharing is not a one-side victory. As I said, <clears throat> rock government, rock military support, much of our money. Uh, so, border sharing should be win-win. US win, Korea win. Based upon the consideration of how we can ensure US forces in Korea, station in Korea, and they work uh, very well. Their basic mission. Also, we should consider about the government budget. I think uh, if we do, based upon the combined spirit, I think it will be good. good. Nowadays, negotiation is ongoing, but we, I hope we have good result. Win-win strategy, based upon win-win strategy. Uh, upcoming transition. I talk about upcoming transition many times with General Tillery when I was here. It changed from time-based to conditions-based because North Korea threat, especially nuclear missile threat. So this condition, first, Korean military should have leading capability of combined operation. Second, rather than US military, Korean military should have count, counter North Korean nuclear and missile threat. Third, security environment of Korean Peninsula and region. So set the condition, conditions based is set the condition is most important factor. We should set the condition. 
before the transition. It prevents vulnerability of defensive republic of Korea. <coughs> so I think based upon this principle, we'll, we'll maintain a steady combat capability. Also, bottom line is, after transition, we should maintain same combat readiness or better readiness than before the transition. That's my viewpoint. Lastly, I'd like to mention about uh, hmm? oh, USFK uh, uh, declaration of the end war, peace treaty, and USC USFK issues. Uh, declaration of war. It, if we declare the war, uh, if declare, I, I'm sorry. End, end, end. Declaration of end war. It means current armistice agreement system goes peace system. This should be done when we have peaceful situation. Think about it. now North Korea capability no change. North Korean nuclear power, North Korean missile power, North Korea WMD, just David mentioned. Also, North Korea has 1.3 million active duty, 8 million paramilitary. It is not changed. So, before <coughs> declare the war end, we should set the condition too. That is my view. Uh, Peace Treaty, 1973. So when you when were you in Vietnam? When was I in Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Two times. Two times. 1968, 1973. Two times Vietnam veteran. Okay, sir. 1973, there were peace agreement between United States. South Vietnam and North Vietnam in Paris. January 27, 1973, it was signed and declared peace. And US forces withdrew from South Vietnam. Two years later, South Vietnam was seized by North Vietnam and Vietnam was unified as a communist country. A lot of people killed a lot of both people. Dr. Kissinger received Nobel Prize. We should consider about this. Lastly, I'd like to mention about UNC USFK. As David said, current CFC system is rob US combined system. So even though U.S. four-star general exercise the operational control authority. He should be ordered by the ROG U.S. National Command 
authority and Raghu's chairman during chiefs of staff. He cannot increase even DEFCON 3 by himself. Should be approved. It is combined system, not just a unilateral system. Uh, UNCC, uh, USFK issue. I think if we uh, agree peace treaty, the legitimacy of UNC uh, will be very reduced. So it could be uh, a result for UNC deactivated. If UNC deactivated, North Korea will insist withdraw U.S. forces from Korea. That's their long time strategy. So, I think this also should be uh, conditions based, not just the time based. Uh, I think, uh, as General Tillery said, we should consider about not only just best case scenario, but also worst case scenario. So, always consider about whole package, not just hopeful package. That's my view. Thank you very much. We'll go back to the panel members and ask them to comment on anything, discuss it, and then we'll open it up for questions. We do have time. We'll start with Dr. Kim, uh, and uh, then I'll go to Dr. Bell. Uh, let me respond first to uh, General Lee's. It's not a comment to his own presentation. <laughs> on I have no objection whatsoever on each and every point he made, because this, is, this makes perfect sense to me, and that has been the case for the last 30, 40 years. And I think because, but problem is the progressive government itself, the people who are around uh, President Moon Jae are the ones who really propose totally different ideas, for example, like uh, transition, because they have torn views about the, uh, for example, and they have, for example, all kinds of, they have a totally different definition and understanding. That's what the problem lies. We started from a very different background about each and every concept of these very important issues. Of course, their remedies and all the resolutions are totally different. So I have no objection to what he, he just proposed. And this should be uh, stay on the course because uh, there is no other option. All the other options will be much weaker. Uh, this is exactly what the North Korea has really schemed to see uh, developing South Korea. So that's why we see many progressive governments and so the people around Mr. Moon Jae-in was like 10 years ago under uh, Noh Moo-hyun. They actually proposed the same thing on each and every question. But we strongly denied all these answers because they didn't make any sense. And that was exactly what the North Korea wanted. So my question to you is, we have to, even though there's got to be a, a continuing resist, resistance from these people who formed the, the current government of Seoul, but there is no other option but to both the United States and South Korea should really uh, persuade and coerce them that there is no other option. Uh, particularly given that North Korea, we have provided, we have given so many things almost unilaterally without getting anything in return. 
So do you want us to do make another concession on each of these again? This is too risky. So if we North Korea vendors one thing for another, then they can move on. We can think of some other options in their in their favor. But, but otherwise, we cannot you know, totally uh, neglect and deny all these uh, long-held traditions on the South Korea and the United States. No concern about that. I think Mr. President, Mr. Uh, Moon will probably understand why we have so you know uh, resistance about all these new new ideas by some of the people who are very close to him, some people who was in the military, by the way, but they were very nationalistic. They were very kind of, it turned out to be pro-North Koreans because I don't think they are pro-North Korean by themselves, but the, all the answers and the views are very close to Pyongyang's ideas, which didn't make much sense to me. But still, these people stick to the old ideas. This is the only solution to the long-standing sensitive between the two Koreas. So I don't have any uh, you know, remedies or other alternatives other than you just presented. I know. Uh, but let me respond to uh, one question Edgar one is how what is the uh, what is the what would be the really concrete signs of the North Korean resolve to do Nicolaj? What are how can we trust them? How can we trust North Korea's sincerity? Of uh, their intention to denuclearize. Uh, very difficult, but, but some of the things that we can come up with is we, we should ask them to come up with a list of their, for example, all of these nuclear related sites, uh, whether it be a full list or just have a meeting with a very, very you know, moderate interim uh, report uh, list. Okay, this is the site that you declare that you have hidden your uh, nuclear weapons and materials and whatnot. That let, let us uh, go there and some, uh, conduct some, some intrusive you know, inspections. Why don't you just let the IEA experts and also North Korea, uh, South Korea, the US, if possible, because we have given up already too much for you. So why don't you just provide us same, you know, quid pro quo. This is the minimum amount of, you know, the expression, your true intentions. Otherwise, we just cannot trust you. So you better come up with a very short list, all the list, and you might give a, a detailed, a longer list later on, but why don't you give a very short list so that we can just visit them one by one and make clear that you are, your point is clear. So I think you uh, ask them uh, to give a very short list, and beginning with a short list and moving to a much detailed list of all the nuclear facilities and materials, and if possible, like, uh, Scientists and experts who have been involved in, in this business for, for long. So CF, CTR, this is exactly what we've been working on for the last 10 years. So CTR, this, so we should work on those questions. That's one sign of their sincerity. Uh, we can really believe the result to denuclearize in the years ahead. The second one is, uh, I think also they have to, um, we're not talking about the, not ICM, but IRBMs, all the in the short range missiles, and also TER tells. So why don't you just let us just visit there and see for our, with our own eyes what they are, how good, how how bad they are, for example. So this is another list of you know improving improving their own resolve to denuclearize. So short list of their all these facilities and materials and ex experts and whatnot, and also all these other. Missiles, shorter range, other than just ICBMs, because 
ICB is very important, but for us, like Japan and Korea, much shorter range of missiles is also very important, and the locations of all these uh, missiles. So this, the list, I think this really matters much, because this is the first step of our confidence building between our North and South Korea. I'm not supposed to do this as a moderator, but I will do it anyway. And I, I want to address some of the things that uh, General Lee talked about because I think they're very important. One, everything we do should be condition-based and not time-based. Because the, the conditions will determine where you should go and what direction you should go. That's, that's first. And General Lee and I have talked about this probably at 40 breakfasts when he was the defense attaché went down the milestones that we thought were important when we looked at North Korea and what are the conditions that we should vary. When you talked about OPCON and UNC and a peace strategy and exercises, these are not military issues, these are political issues. And the fact is, is that the only way that you will get these issues resolved in the way that we want, it, want them resolved, I think, the folks in this room. Because right now you're singing to the choir. And if we're singing a song, everybody's singing the same song back. There, if you go to, I would say, the majority of the people, there's disinformation by the Korean administration and press. What is UNC? What is OPCON? What, what, does that mean we've lost sovereignty? That's the, that's the publicity you hear when you read about uh, OPCON transfer. It has nothing to do with sovereignty. When I was there, I worked for the President of the United States and the President of the Republic of Korea. I took direction from both of them. Okay. Same with exercises. If the Korean President and the Korean administration want exercise continued, all he has to do is pick up the phone and call President Trump and say, we think we need exercise to maintain our security. Uh, it has to do with the peace strategy also. You're absolutely correct. If there is a peace regime where we declare a declaration of the end of the conflict, there's no need for the United Nations Command any longer. The United Nations Command is primarily there to enforce the armistice period, EMZ, etc., etc. The last thing which I'll just mention, and you mentioned it on the sidebar, we talked about this too when you were the defense attaché, and I when you were the defense, I don't know what's going on. When you were the defense attaché, and I was the just an old guy. Okay. We talked about SMA, and and the fact of the matter is, is that I think you have to change the terms of reference of what SMA means. Uh, and in my view. The Korean negotiators on the SMA have not been very thoughtful in showing all of the things, for example, you talked about uh, Pyeongchang, all of the things which equate to the Korean spending dollars for U.S. forces. And it becomes, in a real sense, and I say this respectfully, it becomes a real sense when you look at what are the Japanese providing for special measures agreements, and what are the Koreans percentage-wise? What, what is the percentage of what it costs to have forces in each country? We're not good at articulating that. I've 
talk to you about that. Nothing has changed. We're still talking about dollars and cents instead of other things. Not my job to, to, to discuss that, but I thought I'd, since you and I had talked about that so much, I thought I would uh, raise the issue. Bruce. Can I have your mic, sir? I, this one doesn't work either. But that's oh, yeah. oh, this one? Yeah, that one works. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, uh, my old friend uh, Kim Jong-soo gave a great presentation, but you know, just as importantly, I thought the three of you discussants really obviously went through in depth what we gave you and did a great job. Um, except for Dave, I was very disappointed in you know, his work. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, to answer Dave's, uh, some of Dave's remarks, I want you to think about what I'm saying here, okay? What are we not seeing? Well, how should I know if we can't see it? Come on, Dave. Seriously. Um, I will tell you what was a big problem, because I think I know where you're going with this, what was a big problem when I was at DIA in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and it's a big problem right now. One of the things that drove General Tulelli that kept him awake at night, and I'm sure it keeps the current commander awake at night. How many guns have they got along the DMZ? How many 240s and 170s? By the way, the 240... This mic's going to grind me nuts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll just I'll just talk like this. So um, the two forty millimeter multiple rocket launcher has a range to target most of Seoul. Um, they have them especially I mean I'm not gonna go fourth core, second core, fifth core, first a lot of you guys don't know that, but essentially they're setting in the Kaesong Moonstone invasion corridor in the highest numbers. And some of them are in the Chowan Valley invasion corridor, which I'm thinking a lot of people in this room have seen. Um, and there's probably close to a thousand of those systems there now. Here's the problem. We don't know where they all are. Therefore, Dave, we're not seeing them. So this, if you're going to say, what is something we're not seeing? That's a big problem. And as I'm sure many of you saw, um, the South Koreans, our allies, have now asked the North Koreans to move those guns back, right? Well, the first, the first and biggest thing about that is if you're going to move them back, it should be under ROK Army inspection. Military guys should be inspecting those guns because we don't even know where they all are. So that's an issue, and that's a big part of the North Korean threat. Um, as much of a terror threat as it is, you know, how many people are going to gonna kill in Seoul? Well, what if, you know, uh, estimates are about 20% of those guns have a chemical weapons capability. What do you think is going to happen in, for example, my wife's uh, former home in Shilimdong when chemical weapons are bouncing off the ground? How much panic do you think that's going to cause? You see what I'm saying? That's a big deal. And yes, that worries me. Although my wife is safe in Texas for now, so important stuff. Um, I would also... When, when Dave talked about the policy that Kim Jong-un has, um, it's really not the Kim Jong-un policy, it's the KFR policy, the Kim family regime policy, which is a saying I stole from Dave many years ago and continue to use. Um, the Kim family regime policy is um, conquering or dominating the entire Korean peninsula. Has that changed? And that's the big question. 
I mean, I have my own opinion, and I'm sure many of you do, but that is a big question. Um, Dave mentioned Moon Chung In's article in Foreign Affairs. Uh, Moon Chung In is not a threat to us unless we take him seriously, which I do not. But uh, his article published in, uh, when was it, March? May. May was way more informative and substantive than an article published later in June of this year in Foreign Affairs, written, of course, by me. So I recommend you read that on June 6th. That's about proliferation, actually. Um, and finally, the timeline. I, I agree with you. I think that's vital. So we're in violent agreement on, on just about everything you brought up. On Admiral Wan, um, you ask about um, how can they still export with PSI in place? Really, really easily. Okay? PSI stops probably less than 1% of what the North Koreans are exporting to the Middle East, Africa, Myanmar, Cuba, etc. Um, you know, the United States Navy has fewer ships now than it had in 1918. Um, we, we don't have a lot of resources. A lot of our allies don't have a lot of resources. Um, and it's really, even though there's over 100 nations in PSI now, it's just not, it's just not that effective. And North Korea is expert at getting around sanctions. Last year, for example, the UN panel of experts found that 50 Tanzanian ships, Tanzania, the country in Africa, were being used by North Korean crews to export North Korean arms. That's just one example. They have ships reflagged to countries like Tanzania, Mozambique, um, you know, Mongolia, Singapore, I mean, you know, the ship that was going into Egypt was, I think, that, that had the uh, scud parts on it two years ago. I think that was um, flagged to France. And, of course, we know France isn't selling scud parts to Egypt, obviously. That was a, a North Korean crew with North Korean stuff. So um, PSI is very important symbolically because it shows we're not going to just sit back and let them do it. But PSI has a lot of holes in it that can be plugged. So that's, does that answer your question, sir? Um, General Lee um, asked me about the assessment of reentry. That's not a question. That's the question for North Korea's ICBMs, right? Um, let me put it to you this way. Every Scud, Nodong, Musadon, Hwasong-12, every other missile that they've tested has reentry capability that's proven. Um, we have had some guys, um, and I don't want to say who they are, again, but their initials are Mike Elliman and Mark Fitzpatrick, who have said, you know, um, that we don't think they have reentry capability. I think they're wrong. I think they have that capability now. We even saw a film, and you may have seen this, where it showed the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the Watson 14 coming down near Japan, and it showed that it was on fire. Did you see that? Um, and several people said, oh, this means they don't have reentry capability. Well, my good friend Tal Inbar, who is an Israeli, works at the Fisher Center in Tel Aviv, told me, no, that doesn't mean anything. It means it, it was inflamed when it came down. You are aware that our atmosphere is fire, right? And so um, it, they could very easily have reentry capability. That's still an argument, but if I had to lean one way or the other, I would assume that they got it. ICBMs. That would be my assessment. Um, the best way to stop proliferation. 
which goes right back to Admiral Wan's question. It ain't easy, it ain't sexy, but the best way to do it is to go after the illicit financial networks that support North Korea's proliferation. The front companies, not just in China, but in places like Vietnam, Mongolia, Singapore, Mozambique, Liechtenstein, where they got front companies, um, go after the front companies. Keep going after them like a game of whack-a-mole because we can last longer than they can. Go after, <coughs> go after the banks, not just the little banks. Any bank doing business with North Korea cannot use U.S. dollars, period. That's the law, and we should enforce that. And we've started to do that, and now we've backed off a bit. I, I wish we'd get back to it. Um, thank you. Thank you. At least I have one fan. Buy my book. <laughs> um, burden sharing, uh, General Tulele addressed that. I was going to say basically the same thing you did. At least that's what I'm going to let these guys think. Um, but but uh, I agree with what the General said about that. Um, you talked about a win-win. You know, every time we have these talks, it ends up being a lose-lose for both of us, right? Because we end up both going home and not being real happy, but just coming up with something that we all agree to. And I wish that would stop because uh, I don't know of any alliance, you know, I served 20 years in the Marine Corps, a paramilitary organization. And uh, I, I just wish that uh, because we are such close allies that we could get past it because it's such a small amount of money compared to what really goes on on the peninsula. As you said, think about this folks, the, the South Koreans just spent $8 billion with a B to upgrade Camp Humphreys. You know, I talked earlier about the uh, PX, the largest PX in Asia. I'm not kidding. That's the largest PX in Asia now. So um, anyway, I agree with what you both said. Last thing, I just thought this was really cool from uh, General Lee. You said this is my last thing three times. So I, I hope you didn't major at math at KMA. <laughs> okay, we're now going to do Q&A. We're going to give everybody time to it. So I'm going to change it just a little bit, and we're going to take three questions at a time. If you would, direct your question to one of the panel members or discussions. So Tara again, and... Um, I appreciate the panel here, and I think what we uh, took away from this is um, how important our uh, alliances between the United States and the Republic of Korea, and how it was forged by blood. Now, having said that, uh, when we talk about, and this is mainly towards uh, Dr. Kim, uh, you know, you mentioned those seven areas, issue areas, and I think um, before we talk about that, uh, I'd like to sort of step, take a step back and talk about the political aspect of the alliance. Um, you know, um, we have all allies uh, uh, with states who share our values. I mean, not every state that shares our values, but our allies do share our values, uh, especially in terms of political and economic systems. Uh, so in this case, uh, liberal democracy and market economy. So that is very founding um, the shared values between um, the two countries. Um, what, um, so, so it's, it's shared values and also willingness. And I think that's crucial, crucial ingredients for um, for allies to resolve any of the issues. And so let me just talk about the uh, what's happening in South Korea that I have observed. 
Um, recently, there was an effort to change the Constitution in which um, there was an effort to delete liberal, infernal liberal democracy um, in, as a basic order of the Republic of Korea. And, you know, of course, democracy, we love the word democracy, but democracy just means majority rule, and it's something that North Korea also uses. North Korea has people's democracy. So when we delete the, or try to delete this word uh, liberalism, the concept of freedom, let me just talk about that real quickly. Um, it's basically freedom of speech, press, assembly, um, and also freedom to own private property, which is essential for a market economy. And it also means rule of law, fair and free election, separation of power. So all these things that we sort of take it for granted, that's what liberalism is, liberal democracy. So why would this administration want to delete that concept from the Constitution and also from the textbook? So I, I think what's important in this case for to deal with our you know, alliance issues is to go back to that basic value. Of, and um, so, so I think the Moon Administration needs to be very clear about you know, what direction he wants to take, what kind of value he wants you know, South Korea to have. So I think that's very important. Um, and the other one, very quickly, is about willingness. And let me just throw out that as an example. That was deployed um, in order to protect South Korea against North Korea's uh, missile threat. Uh, but that's not how it was portrayed in South Korean media. And so there was a big issue running up to the election. And then even after the election, it was a big political issue, a lot of oppositions, where uh, the opposition, um, uh, the protesters, blocked the road for at least a year so that our soldiers couldn't even get more meals or proper uh, facilities uh, built because they blocked the road. And uh, after a year, um, it was, um, you know, the police finally dispersed them and the uh, vehicles were able to go in and construct. And I thought the problem was solved. But no, it's not. It's, it was just at one time. And, and the roadblock continues. So uh, that's not a good sign of willingness to work closely between the two allies. So I just wanted to highlight those, and if anybody else has comments about that, I'd like to you know, hear that. Thank you. Yes, right here, right. Then do you go after this next question. I'm Peter Humphrey. I'm an intel analyst, a, a former diplomat, and a, a broadcaster in the Middle East. Um, I note that it is possible to find interesting things on the seafloor and that the question of survivability of the warhead has been solved. I can't tell you what it is, but it has been solved. Um, two things we're not seeing, Dr. Bechtel. One, the North Koreans will at some point make the case, as we show over and over again, that they are the darkest country on the face of the earth and they are desperately in need of energy. And that at some point, they're going to have to continue selling coal just to get revenue and to use nuclear energy to run their domestic situation. They will make the case to a lot of bleeding hearts around the world that therefore they should be allowed to retain the centrifuges and the uranium hexafluoride plant and give up just the bombs. Another thing we're not seeing, the uh, hacking operations are overwhelmingly conducted from Chinese territory across Chinese circuits and through the Chinese internet. And even those few operations that are conducted out of North Korean territory ride on Chinese circuits. China, no doubt, zero doubt, allows this because they're sharing the take. 
Um, and even if they're not sharing the take legitimately, I guarantee you the Ministry of State Security has put shunts into the North Korean offices and is taking whatever they want. So the big question is, why have we never demarched the Chinese to say that North Korean operations passing through your circuits ends tomorrow morning? And there will be no further collaboration with this country until it does. I don't get it. Hugo. Hugo Kim from International Council on Korean Studies. Uh, my question forwarded to my longtime friend, Dr. Chansky. I'm glad to see you here. Uh, your paper, last part of your paper, uh, talk about the potential instability and crisis of North Korea. So uh, this would come from basically the conflict between democratization and market liberalization. Kim Jong-un came to the denuclearization summit, I think mostly with economic motives, which would bring democratic waves into the, its society, whatever type of model he may choose. Then it is contradictory to theory to promise or to guarantee the regime survival of DPRK in the post-denuclearization. Is there any hidden God's hand to make this possible? Because uh, many say peace regime and survival of North Korean regime. So that concept disturbs me in studies of history, my favorite. Thank you. Okay, we'll start with the Dr. Kim and have him answer the, answer the questions that were pointed to him, and then we'll go to Dr. Bechtel. And then we'll start with Dr. Kim, then Dr. Bechtel, and then uh, we'll open the floor for more questions or comments. Okay, let me respond in reverse order, if I might. Uh, responding to Dr. Hugo's question, because he is the economist, he knows the answer, but he just trying to explore me how shallow your understanding is. Us. But anyway, because the hidden gods and I think uh, now when I was writing the last section, the potential instability and crisis in North Korea, I was not actually thinking of that kind of possibility because I'm a political scientist, by the way. Uh, but this is something I, I can add to my final version, uh, Dr. Dr. Kim. Um, uh, because uh, nobody was talking this kind of possibility. When I proposed that I'm going to write on this issue, many people in South Korea and the conservative, why don't you put this one on your agenda? Because this is going to be a very annoying <coughs> topic to the current government and so because we're talking about the peace, reconciliation, but not talking about the potential instability in North Korea crisis again. So my, but my idea is, after the summit talks, Everything sounds okay, maybe in you know, two years, because North Koreans are very delighted with all the goodness coming from the great supreme leader. But after one or two years, they're going to realize what is the real situation in North Korea, because they are pretty much biased society, no freedom whatsoever. So they're dealing with a real problem with their own regime. That means they're going to uh, show, you know, uh, kind of uh, publicly, kind of, kind of disrespect 
or question about the the his own regime, the Kim Jong Un. So that's why I think probably they're going to face a very serious question that they have not thought about. We're not talking about the food crisis or but the, the distrust, but really beginning to question because they become much more information uh, with all the information coming from the outside world, they become much more knowledgeable about this. So there will be not just the you know, hardliners, but all the people who may be turn out to be whistleblowers. This is something we should really uh, revise. So that's why, uh, that's the idea why I uh, decided to put this on the last part, because this, I believe this is a very important crisis for North Korea. It's not just South Korean, you know, military capability, but internally, that's their problem. That's where their implosion may start. So this is my point. But in economic terms, I don't have any you know, clear idea, but I'm going to ask you later on. Uh, the second question uh, being was, uh, because kind of NGOs and Taryn, you're talking about the first question was about the democracy, liberal democracy. This is a very, very uh, important question. There's a lot of you know, liberals, conservatives uh, divide, a very clear divide in South Korea. Because this is just one small example, but it tells a lot how divided we are. Uh, democracy versus liberal democracy, they're very different things. But these people, if you look at the Mr. Moon Jae and his people, who have been always advocating this kind of idea, it should be a, we should accommodate North Korean, you know, democracy as well. Both South and North Korean democracy, whatever the democracy may call, they might call them, we have to accompany all these to make one nation, unified nation again. This is the idea. Uh, but I think people still pretty much kind of indoctrinated. We have a brainwash, particularly younger generation Koreans, under their 30s. They have been under you know, this training and education and school for the last 20 years. All these very progressive Chungyoju, for example, teachers. So they're even very difficult to reverse the idea. Uh, so we, we have to really come up with a very uh, moderate idea. How are we going to revise? How are we going to uh, kind of, in, persuade our people that this is heading toward a very Bad, uh, you know, uh, the the end of strength. This is not we should be heading for. So I think we are going to tremendous uphill battle, even when it comes to defining one or two specific terms. It's not just a you know, constant revision, but one specific definition, like a democracy, liberal democracy, quite different uh, from each other. Younger generation, older generations, you know, liberal conservative, very much divided. It's not just North Korean nuclear weapons and. We are so divided, so polarized. So there is why we need the hidden God's hand in the document. So the second question, maybe I can just make a kind of a broader comment to all the three questions that have been generated to me. It is, there have been a conservative, there have been NGOs, pro, very nationalist, and you might call them pro-North Koreans, because out of their personal grudges, because they've been under persecution, under Pakune, I mean, the, his, her father, Park Jong-hee, and Yuba, they have this kind of personal grudges. And they have written a lot about the things, according to new things about the NGOs, outcome transfers, because I was working for the government institutions, and we know what are the real true answers. But people don't like to listen to us, because this, we sound so uh, mundane and nothing new. So they're looking for some new resources. 
because angels come with very interesting ideas, new ideas. This is the reality. But as a matter of fact, it's not the reality. That's a fake news, really. But people was listening to this kind of fake news by the NGOs. So this is very widespread, not just military security issues, economies and democracy, all those social issues, across all social domain of social issues. They're very uh, deep-rooted, you know, anti-government, anti-American, I would say, uh, pro-North Korean, pro-nationalist you know, uh, sentiments. They have really grown fast and pretty much widespread. Uh, across Korean society right now. So this is a reality. That's why we lost a lot in the last ele election and also even the original ele election. Uh, but, but I think we still have a hope, depending on how North Korea reacts to all these very good proposals by this government, because they have their own internal problems, uh, including the potential stability. And China will be also, you know, coming to this kind of equation. So it's not going to just go as some you know, NGOs might have thought. There will be a lot of different uh, factors coming in, China's impact, North Koreans, the reality, and people are beginning to put much more knowledge about the outside world. So I'll combine all together at the end of the day. This, this, things will not turn out the way North Korean leadership or some South Korean NGOs have long, uh, long, have long, uh, long to see. Uh, I think, but so I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because we, as a, uh, you know, U.S. and South Korean allies, and also Japanese, because the, the democracy will prevail in the end. Thank you. One point uh, that I just like to make it has to do with that. Uh, one, uh, again, disinformation on what that is, not very well articulated by either the Korean press or the uh, administration on what that was. Uh, secondly, uh, as a function of that, uh, Iraq populism businesses suffered as a function of uh, the Chinese, uh, if you will, ban on many different activities, which was, which was shameful and still is shameful. Thirdly, uh, we put that in there to defend uh, the Republic of Korea. And uh, as was said, still to this day, to logistically support the systems and to provide quality of life to the men and women who are serving in those that, that THAAD battery, it's very difficult. And uh, difficulty and, and very expensive because you cannot use the roads, you have to fly stuff in. I mean, all of those things, which, oh, by the way, sends, an, sends a message to not only to the soldiers that are serving there, but also to the American people and the Congress of the United States who funds our troops in Korea. Dr. Bechtel, if you would answer Yes, sir. Uh, I just got a couple of things. Is there was really only one question directed to me. Peter, I, your name's Peter, right? Um, when it comes to nuclear power, I'd like to point out something that is an absolute fact. If you look at Yongbyon, there have never been any wires coming out of it connected to anything. I don't know what the North Koreans think they can convict us, you know, convince us, or the UN, that they need that to power up. It's a five megawatt experimental reactor. Um, and there are other, the other part of their, their nuclear program, now there's three parts with the thermonuclear part, but the ATU facilities, they have at least two. And 
we've only seen one, that guy, Secret Hecker, walked through with Jack Pritchard. Secret Hecker is the guy who said, it'll take them 15 years to dismantle their nuclear program. Right. It'll take me five years to rake my backyard. I mean, it's it just not, it's not credible. Um, so that, that I, I would hope that common sense will prevail if they try and do that, although I, I agree with you, they may do that. Um, China's sharing the stake. Um, I mean, I, I, you and I know each other, so I know that you know China's been actively involved in cyber warfare against the United States, too. And, and I, I would just ask the question, why haven't we done more about it? I mean, they brought down the, remember this, Dave? They brought down, and you too, sir, probably remember, they brought the Naval War College's entire site down like eight years ago, just destroyed it. And everybody knew they did it, and you know, we just, it, it, it ended up in the Army Times and Navy Times, and just kind of, we moved on. I agree, it's a concern. This is not a, this is not kind of a sideshow anymore. This is a big deal, like Dave said. Um, third thing, if you know about the credibility of the reentry capability, you better tell us, man, okay? If it's a secret, you know, then don't tell us you know a secret, because I mean, you know, come on. Go ahead. Don't ask him to divulge anything he should. Okay, no, Dave. The other aspect of cyber that I've been worried about has to do with nuclear testing. I mean, we don't need to test nuclear weapons anymore. You know, we can do everything simulated through computer uh, simulation, I believe. Which they don't have. Well, but I wonder, though, if they're developing that, you know, that's something we don't see. And, you know, they will stop nuclear testing, uh, perhaps, when they develop the capability to be able to conduct uh, simulation testing, computerized testing, so they won't need uh, to, to, uh, to test any more nuclear weapons, just as we don't. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why, you know, they were so willing to, you know, put up the facade that they're destroying their test facility other than it's probably already collapsed. Could I answer that, sir? Well, a couple of things on that. First of all, they've only tested that thermonuclear device once. So I would think they need to test it more times. I could be wrong. I mean, as Chang Soo Kim said, I'm a political scientist. I'm not Siegfried Hecker, and I didn't predict it would take them 15 years to tear down their nuclear program. I do have common sense, though. That's the first thing on that. And the other part that you brought up was... Oh, you, you talked to, yeah, that's that's one part. Second part is, that facility up at Pyongyiri, that, that facility was useless anyway. They had, they had tested stuff there so many times that the last time they went in after they tested it, it collapsed and killed like two dozen guys. That facility was done anyway. Um, so one would think that the practicality of North Koreans and the way they build their testing facilities, that there's another testing facility somewhere. And uh, Sir uh, Bill Newcomb has his hand up. Yeah, Bill. Just a quick two finger. Uh, they collapsed one tunnel. There are other tunnels at the site, so the site remains viable. Maybe. Okay, other questions that we didn't get around to? We're doing three at a time. Yes, right here. George. Jacob Mandel with College of William and Mary. Could you expand a little more on how North Korea is deploying their military or military assets outside of the Korean Peninsula 
you talked about chemical weapons and nuclear weapons in Syria, and then also special forces working with countries in Africa, and, and anything else that comes to mind. Thank you. George? Thanks. I, I've just got a real quick question that I'll toss to the panel, and I'm uh, just curious about what your uh, opinions would be. I, I think that there's as high a probability of, of, a, of a catastrophic environmental disaster occurring due to North Korea's nuclear uh, testing, the, you know, the state of their current facilities. And I kind of, although I, I couldn't stand here and really articulate it uh, in depth, but I kind, of, I kind of blame China a little bit for that. You know, I kind of wonder if they... If they war game this and figured out a good disaster response plan because this could be a thermonuclear Chernobyl that the and I'm also surprised a little bit that there is there hasn't been a more of an NGO a global NGO response to the environmental disaster that's that's uh, unfolding so I just curious about what your opinion would be on that and, and is that a leverageable negotiating point to pull into the negotiations what's the, what's your plan guys on the on the environment we had one in the back on, on my right Okay, we have two. We have one back there? No? Okay. Bruce, I'll give you the first one. Okay. Um, military deployments outside of the peninsula. Um, so first of all, let me describe the, the way that military personnel go from North Korea to somewhere else. Obviously, they have no foreign bases anywhere, at least other than clandestine bases. Um, typically, facilities that are set up for them or that they build um, alongside or on bases of other countries. Um, what is the reason they do this? Almost all of it, I don't know of any of it that's not this, is proliferation, what we would consider proliferation. So, for example, in Namibia, how many people here have even heard of Namibia? Yeah, I mean, Bruce Bennett has, but you have a PhD, Bruce. So, um, I mean, in Namibia, a country of two and a half million people, according to the Royal Uniform Services Institute, they proliferated $331 million worth of military stuff, for lack of a better term, between 2001 and 2016. So, there was a lot of North Koreans in Namibia until just last year, and we still don't know if they're gone or not because the Namibian government is not cooperating with the UN. Um, and as I said, probably hundreds of them on the ground, maybe more. As I said, um, where they were deployed was typically on Namibian bases. Sometimes bases that they built for the Namibians and then moved in along with those guys. Um, in Iran, where there are a lot of North Koreans, hundreds of them, more than 600. Um, they're scattered around different facilities. They have... Um, uh, so many facilities, so many North Korean guys in Iran that they have their own resort on the, uh, whatever the sea is, that are, Caspian Sea, thank you. Um, don't ever correct me again, my mother did that once, once. Um, so, and in Syria, they've got hundreds of advisors as well. Um, I would encourage you, because you seem interested in this, I know I am too. Um, if you read the last UN panel of experts report, you can just Google UN panel of experts report. They actually describe how North Korea has technicians, engineers, experts at three different Syrian facilities um, that uh, manufacture or use chemical precursors and, and put them on missiles. 
etc. So again, the modus operandi. I'm just giving you a few examples. Typically, when they, I wouldn't call it deploy. I would because that's when you're going to fight somewhere. But typically, they go to these places because they're there for the long term. Um, the new modus operandi for the North Koreans is, for example, they'll sell a new system to Iran or Syria or even older systems like small arms to places like Ethiopia or Namibia. And once that country's government likes the system, then they'll build a, a, a facility there where they can actually build it themselves. But they can only do it with North Korean advisors and North Korean parts, which still have to come in. So that's the example, so just a few examples of how the North Koreans uh, place their guys overseas. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank okay. you. The other thing, if you read that report, uh, another uh, activity is uh, labor. A hard currency, uh, North Koreans export labor to many countries, and uh, they get hard currency for that labor, and that's also uh, defined and written in the uh, UN report. Bruce, you had something. And I, and I believe that the, the, uh, the World Cup Stadium in Russia, the, the construction they had to bring in North Koreans to finish the construction. Yeah, that is correct. Amazing. Sorry. Bruce Bennett had something to say here. Don't say everything you're going to say tomorrow. Oh, happens. No, no. We talked a little while ago about uh, cyber threats. And I've done a fair amount of talking with uh, senior North Korean defectors about how they posture their cyber threats. The different organizations that do cyber activities, which is basically your Ministry of State Security, Ministry of People's Security, and so forth, have their own representatives in countries like China. They make relationships with Chinese companies, or if it's in different countries, with those companies. They promise to bring a certain number of North Korean programmers in to work for the company, usually 20 or 30 at a time, with a security force that will come with them. Um, and the programmers are told, you go in, you do your very best for those companies during the workday. And when the workday is over, you simply transition to being a hacker. Um, so they've adapted to approaches which allow them a fair degree of invisibility because now they're working from computers that are owned by Chinese companies and it's hard to track and hard to monitor exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of that kind of activity going on. The good news was the Chinese were expelling a lot of them several months ago. The bad news is we've got to be anticipating they're headed back to China now. Yeah. Okay, I'll ask Dr. Kim to talk about the catastrophic environmental event potential. That's a topic I really know little, <laughs> but there, other than just reading the newspapers uh, clips from coming from China and South Korea, uh, their concerns in, in that part of the Hungarian area because it's very close to the border with China, and the Chinese were always talking about some potential uh, of this, you know, seismic. The activities because of the, the nuclear testing for six, six times nuclear testing in the past. Uh, they might exaggerate, but, but if you take the seismic activities, they might trigger a, another eruption of the Mount of the Baktusan. So that's their concern. So there is no way that we can just totally neglect all these kind of uh, potential uh, links between these two 
even though it might be very small. But I think it's glad, you know, finally they just closed all these terminals, and so there is no more such concerns you know, connecting between the two, the seismic activities, and also the uh, kind of, the, you know, like a fundamental uh, thermonuclear Chernobyl. Uh, I hope it is, the, now is a thing of the past. I don't, uh, I'm not so sure. But about the NGOs, South Korean NGOs, uh, because like peace-loving NGOs, Greens, they always talk about the kind to exaggerate this, all the dangers that might come from this kind of nuclear testing, uh, which may turn for, uh, it might be good for us because we, they are just uh, focusing on the, all the dangers that might come from North Korean nuclear testing. But on the other hand, it gives a wrong impression that North Korea has been very much successful in their nuclear testing and this much advanced, and there is no way for the Chinese to stop them so this might blur our ideas, maybe uh, we don't know, but all these kind of fake news just coming around, uh, we, uh, we are pretty much unsure what is the exact. Uh, I, I don't think Chinese knows all, we, all these details because the North Korean uh, authority had not uh, accepted North Korean Chinese because for fear of being you know, contaminated, not just contaminated by these radioactivities, but also they don't want to expose all these nuclear facilities to you, to the allies like the Chinese. So there's no way, I think so all these kind of information or news are not 100% groundless, but has not trustworthy. So we have a certain uh, limit of uh, whether we can really trust all these news coming about this kind of Chernobyl, another Chernobyl in North Korea. Are there any other questions? Uh I just think it's important that everybody understands prevailing winds <laughs> and what color your car turns when the sand blows from China to South Korea. So that's a very good question that few folks think about it. I always thought about it when I thought about uh, any use of those kinds of weapon systems anywhere. So thank you very much to the panel, the discussants, those that answered, uh, asked questions. Those that made statements, I think it's been a very uh, active afternoon, very informative. Uh, I thank you for that. Tomorrow morning we will start at 0900 again. C-SPAN is going to, in fact, uh, be televising it or at least uh, filming it for a later date. Uh, General Sharp will lead the panel. We have a tremendous uh, group of panel members, Bruce Bennett being one of them. Uh, and uh, we really hope that we have the same level of attendance as we did today. Again, I want to uh, thank uh, those who have been involved in setting this thing up. So we're done. Well, we've spent the time we said we were going to spend, even though we started early. So thanks a lot to everybody here. Have a great afternoon.